This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Clavio. Clavio is a platform that helps growth focused e commerce brands drive more sales with super targeted, highly relevant email, Facebook, and Instagram marketing. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jance. My guest today is Rita McGrath. She is a globally recognized expert on strategy, innovation, and growth, and also the author of a fairly new book called Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. So Rita, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So I'm guessing I won't be the first person to ask this. Um, you're far more educated than some of my, uh, some of my other guests, <laughs> but uh, what is an inflection point? Let's, let's start there. An inflection point is some change in the environment that creates a 10 times impact on your business, whether for good or for ill. Uh, so as an example, the advent of digitization has created inflection points for sectors as wide varying as television, media, advertising, and content distribution. So, so how can we um, – I, I know that uh, obviously – the first part of the book is, you know, how do you see one of these coming? Mm -hmm. How do you decide what to do about it? How do you bring, I think, in fact, that's exactly the way the book's broken up and how to bring your organization with you. But uh, let's start with, I mean, I don't think these things, you know, come knocking on the door, right? I mean, how, how do you start sort of see them sneaking up on you? Well, I think the first thing to remember is that they don't happen instantly. And, I, you know, they feel instant when you are experiencing their effects. But if you think about just the digital revolution as a case in point, um, you know, we've had this thing building up since the early 90s, <laughs> you know, when we had the first friendly um, web browser. Uh, and the seeds of it go back even further back than that. Um, so the, the inspiration is really a bit like um, the line in Ernest Hemingway's book, The Sun Also Rises. And uh, one character asks another, well, how did you go bankrupt? And the response was, well, gradually and then suddenly. <laughs> so, so I think the first thing to remember is you can spot the early warnings long before these things are at your doorstep demanding that you respond to them. What do you say to that company that, and I've, I've, you know, I've, my whole business, uh, really the last 30 years that I've been in my business, you know, I've seen all of this, you know, digital transformation for sure. But wh what do you say to that company that says, I see this coming, but to, to actually respond the way that we think we need to is suicide. Um, mm. I'll give you a great example. Um, the, I used to, because I've had a marketing business, I used to run a lot of ads in newsprint. Um, in fact, we used to run a lot of classified ads be, for certain things. And, you know, that was a huge revenue. In fact, I think the, I think the classified ad business was, you know, half of the, the ads that uh, newspapers got. And that went away one day, you know, completely. And they mm -hmm. certainly could have seen it coming. They saw what Craigslist was doing, for example. But mm -hmm. to do something about it, you know, meant that they were going to gut their business. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a stellar example for that business specifically is the uh, Norway-based company Shipstead. And their head of operations said in the early 90s, he said, you know, the internet, the internet is perfect for classified ads. Classified ads are perfect for um, uh, the internet. And what they did, which a lot of newspapers didn't, is uh, they incented their leaders, whether you were part of the digital division or whether you were part of the print division, what mattered to your bonus and compensation was whether you kept that client for Shipstead, however they wanted to do business with you. And what you find most of the newspapers did 
in the early days of digital was they just messed that completely up because they put the digital division and the print divisions basically at war with each other. And so, you know, you, you ended up with the digital division not getting the resources that it needed to make a smooth transition. And today, Shipstead is, I think, one of the top three, maybe even the top two uh, classified advertising providers like on the planet. Well, and I think I think what you also saw was a lot of people kind of sticking their head in the sand saying, you know, we're, we're just going to ride this out. I mean, I'm a 62-year-old CEO. And I've got a board and, uh, you know, to make some giant change that is going to save us in 10 years from now. That's a hard decision, isn't it? It is. And it takes a lot of courage. Um, I think this is where I really want to have boards take a more forward looking view because, you know, you can't expect that that 62 year old CEO whose bonus and comp and retirement is going to depend on short term performance in the next two years to do this. But, you know, the boards have a fiduciary responsibility to their investors. And as the business roundtable has recently pointed out to the larger communities that organizations serve. And I just think far too many boards roll over and play dead and don't take that responsibility seriously enough. So are there are there certain you know, gauges that, that people, you know, and obviously I'm sure it varies by industries, but are there certain things that people should be checking in on like, you know, a couple times a year or, uh, you know, to, to start, you know, spotting some of these, you know, maybe they start out as trends, uh, you know, before they overwhelm an industry. Mm -hmm. So one of the most effective things companies can do is make sure that they've got some budget, some resource set aside for experimenting with what I call options, what some people call little bets. So these are small investments that you make that give you some insight into what could be changing in your world. So they're not they're not big bet the company, you know, huge commitments, but they're small experiments. So um, let me take an example just because that'll make it more clear for people. Uh, Nike for years felt that there was an opportunity to have some kind of direct connection with their consumers. And so in the late 80s, they invented this horrible thing called, I think it was called the Nike Motion, which was like you strapped it around your waist and it had little sensors in it, which could, you know, peer at the ground and tell you how fast you were going and all that sort of thing. And, you know, it was kind of kludgy and it caught on with a niche, but it really didn't get anywhere. But they never really dropped the idea. And the opportunity for getting close to customers revived again after Apple introduced the first uh, iPod. And, you know, we forget, we think this is ancient history. It was 2001. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Um, and what they did was they partnered with Nike. Um, they invented this sensor, which became part of the Nike Plus system. And today, Nike Plus, the website, you know, 20 years later, has something like 135 million members on it. But, you know, that digital inflection, they were experimenting with it all along. So when it finally came to be, as is the case now, that companies are discovering the power of going direct to consumer. Nike was already perfectly positioned. Some people might assume, and I'm I'm prepared for you to bat this right back at me, <laughs> but some people might assume that smaller organizations, small companies actually have an advantage when it comes to kind of changing direction or, or innovating. Would you say that that's true? Well, um, yes, they have fewer assets uh, to, to mess around with. So back to our newspaper guys, um, you know, if you were running a major newspaper back in the 80s, I mean, the stuff that was on your mind was not classified ads. It was union contracts and truck drivers 
papers and the price of paper and, you know, did you get reliable ink supply? I mean, you know, and when you go to a digital footprint, all those assets become kind of irrelevant. Um, so I think it is easier for a smaller firm if they decide to, to shift direction because they don't have all those assets that have to be written off and dealt with and otherwise navigated. A company that you uh, use as an example in the book is Adobe. Um, and mm -hmm. of course, a lot of software companies, you know, we, we all bought the CDs and boxes and <laughs> that kind of stuff. And, and we no longer do that anymore. Uh, but, it, but uh, Adobe really went all in, didn't they? Yes, they did. They burned the bridges. Yeah. I used, I mean, I used, I, I remember buying a, a page maker uh, in a mm -hmm. box, which of course they bought from Aldous, um, which was kind of their flagship, which of course obviously now is mushroomed into, you know, hundreds and hundreds of titles. But do you, in your research, I mean, is there something that other than them, you know, maybe what appeared to be taking a big gamble, is there something that made them, that you believe made them sure that this was the inflection point? I think it actually has its roots in the Great Recession. Um, you know, the problem with buying shrink-wrapped software is if you run out of free cash flow, it's very easy for you to decide to hang on to whatever you've got for another year. And Adobe really had a big setback. And, you know, you often see this pattern where something happens that suddenly causes people to say, hang on, you know, this time is different. And I think what that got them thinking, the fact that they had that shock, got them thinking very hard about the future of their business. And, you know, how could you do a couple of things? Firstly was ensure a more stable revenue stream so that you weren't depending on people making and discretionary purchase. Uh, but the second one was as you looked at how technology was evolving in that kind of 2006, 2007, 2008 period, something we have, again, forgotten is that that was really when cloud took off as a business model and Salesforce led the way with this idea of monthly recurring revenue. Um, but it was starting to be real. Um, and I think what Adobe realized was, was not only were they vulnerable to buyers suddenly deciding they didn't need to spend that kind of money, but that a new competitor could come in and use these new technologies and knock them off their perch. So I think it was kind of two revelations over time that caused them to make that decision. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, I mean, I've, I think it's one of those that was a tough decision, but it was, was, you know, an, an inevitable one, I guess. Uh, but it was, I think, tough because the technology wasn't quite there yet. And the online versions were not very good mm -hmm. um, initially. I mean, now I, you know, they've certainly caught up, but I, mm -hmm. I think that was, a, you know, they were basically not only changing their business model, they were, they were creating, a, you know, an experience for a customer that maybe wasn't as good. Right. And one of the things I thought was smart about what they did was they said, look, the online version has to have different attributes than the version that lives by itself in your desktop. And, you know, our initial online customers are going to be people that really value that. So one of the things, for instance, that they did that was different was, you know, you used to have to pay a ton of money for Adobe. And so the only people that could afford it, you know, were either very much in that space or larger institutions. Well, today you can be an Adobe customer for $7.99 a month. <laughs> you know, if all you want to do is have their password protection capability on your P PDFs, you can do that very inexpensively. So they really opened up the market to a whole lot of users who couldn't afford to be part of their universe before. Yeah. And and you're right, though. The model changes so much um, in terms of distribution and, and assets and hard costs uh, that it really mm -hmm. it really allows for that kind of innovation doesn't it it does yeah I want to remind you that this episode is brought to you by Clavio. Clavio helps you build meaningful customer relationships by listening and understanding cues 
from your customers. And this allows you to easily turn that information into valuable marketing messages. There's powerful segmentation, email autoresponders that are ready to go, great reporting. You want to learn a, bit, a little bit about the secret to building customer relationships? They've got a really fun series called Clavio's Beyond Black Friday. It's a docu-series, a lot of fun, quick lessons. Just head on over to Clavio.com Beyond BF, Beyond Black Friday. So are there any industries that you look at right now and think, boy, they better be watching out? Oh, absolutely. Any industry that's been stable for a really long period of time and hasn't really had to deal with much disruption. So examples are uh, the construction business, um, you know, the guys that make, you know, roofing tiles and, and that kind of thing. Um, I think insurance is is very interesting how stable it's been, even though it sells a digital product by and large. Um, definitely retail, you know, we're already seeing retail going through a major revolution. Uh, I do a monthly newsletter and this, this month, the situation I looked at was um, holiday shopping and how that's changed. Um, and just some really interesting trends, you know, in the way that we deal with customers. I mean, for example, in marketing, as you know, the traditional gold star was you thought about the marketing funnel. And so you sort of had leads coming in the top and money flowing out the bottom. And in between were these hapless customers, <laughs> which we tried to celebrate from the cash in their wallets. Uh, and, uh, and right now what we see is this really immersive set of customer experiences where we're constantly in contact with customers at any possible point in their journey. So it's really a radical transformation. Yeah, or I would say another thing that I, that I see is that we are sometimes not in contact with them at all when they are going on the journey, that they're in control of it. And, and you know, when and how they engage, you know, is is totally up to them or how they do their research. And a lot of times we, we are surprised that we even get a customer, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So what about the grocery industry? That's one that's always um, – kind of puzzled me because people have been talking about grocery delivery and like the Amazon of groceries, um, you know, for a long time. And, mm -hmm. and while I think some inroads have been made and certainly with Amazon's purchase of whole foods that gives them, uh, um, you know, some sort of, uh, of platform to, to come from, but it seems like that one, nobody's been able to crack. Well, yeah, I think so. Because buyers fall into very, very different customer segments when it comes to food. Um, so one of the things I predicted that, you know, these meal kit companies, you know, the blue aprons and those kinds of companies that the supermarkets were going to do to them what they did to Boston Chicken. I mean, you may remember how hyped up that was years ago. Um, and what ended up happening was all the supermarkets said, hang on, we can do rotisserie chicken. You must be kidding. So uh, shortly after Amazon bought Whole Foods, I was in a, our local one. And uh, lo and behold, there are Amazon meal kits ready to be picked up and taken home. <laughs> So to come back to your major question, though, I think one of the reasons groceries is so hard is that there's always going to be a segment of people that really want to pick out what they consume. Um, I also think that the better grocery retailers, and here I'm thinking of Wegmans and Kroger, um, they've actually made the shopping journey better. You know, it's more up to date. Uh, you go in and you're surprised. Um, because don't forget, a lot of people don't know exactly what they want to buy when they go in the store, right? They're they're going in to see what looks fresh or what do I feel like? Or is it pasta salad tonight? You know, it's and you can't really replicate that experience online. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, you're, you're right, though. I think some of the better retailers are, you know, the, my Whole Foods has a, a restaurant and a bar and, uh, you know, it's become 
become a community place where they, they actually have live music on Fridays. And wow. uh, so, so they're really trying to do, I think they are trying to, to, as you, to your point, you know, change the experience. Mm-hmm. And I think actually that's, you know, that's a great point because I think some, some businesses that were kind of old schoolish, you know, I'm thinking the, you know, the local bookstore, um, that, you know, for all intent and purposes got put out of business by the first, the big boxes and then the, you know, the online. But the ones that have hung in there have changed the experience. Uh, mm-hmm. they, and, and that's, you know, that's what's kept them, you know, not being about the books, but being about the community, for example. And I think that's a, uh, that's a small scale example, I think, that, that people could look at too is as, as you're getting ready to get put out of business, then, you know, what is, what is the experience change that could happen that would then sort of make the big box or whoever you're competing with kind of irrelevant? Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I mean, a, a stellar example of this is Best Buy. Um, I mean, Best Buy was given up for dead 15 years ago because everybody was talking about showrooming. Oh, you know, you just go in the store, you do all your shopping, right? And then you order online for cheaper. And what Hubert Jolie said was, wait a minute, you know, there's things we can do because we have a brick and mortar place that nobody in e-commerce can match. And so we have the Geek Squad and we have the Home Advisor program. And, you know, he basically said to the Sonys and Microsofts of the world, do you want to be in a Best Buy? Great. You pay rent for the privilege. I'm not buying inventory from you people. (laughs) Really change the I'd say the power dynamics among that kind of retail. And that that probably goes to your example of kind of what to do about it, right? I mean, that um, it's not just merely a, a matter of saying, okay, we're going to muscle up and fight this thing. It's, it's actually to make a fundamental shift, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing people often overlook is something that uh, Clay Christensen, who you know, recently passed away, uh, called the jobs to be done. And what we forget is nobody gets up in the morning and buys a product or service because they want to, right? In very rare cases, they buy it because there's some problem or goal that they want to meet in their lives. Um, And what we forget is that my consideration set for how I get that problem addressed could involve many things across many industries. And so people get so wedded to this is how we do things and this is how my industry has always been constructed that we forget that. You know, we don't pay attention when customers flee for something else. Gosh, I preach that all the time. Um, you know, a company that, say, cuts down trees or something in a local market, um, the problem they actually solve is that they show up when they say they're going to and they clean up the job site, you know, everybody assumes they can take the tree down. And I think a lot of people forget that that's what people are actually buying. Absolutely. You know, a great example is the whole batch of direct to consumer companies, such as Dollar Shave Club, as an example, or Casper uh, or Wayfair. Um, you know, the product itself may not be as good. I mean, I, I would imagine Dollar Shave Club doesn't have all the advanced technology that a, a Gillette would have. But, you know, you don't have to go to a store. You don't have to deal with the fortress where the razors are locked up. You don't have to run out. I mean, you know, it's just all these other parts of the experience are so much better. We might even be cool with an inferior product. Yeah. It's funny you say that because uh, my I have millennial children and they are all in love with uh, Casper and I don't think it's about the as much about the product as it is the convenience and they love their marketing they love their message they love how fun mm-hmm. they are um, yeah. and, and I don't think they in some ways <clears throat> I'm not even sure that they're analyzing is is a better mattress. No. Well, and the other thing that companies like Casper have done is, um, you know, conventionally, a mattress was something you lived with for 15 or 20 years. So it was a really high risk, high involvement purchase. What Casper 
wisdom has brought the price and the risk down low enough that we're like, all right, you know, if I use it for three years and buy another one, I'll just do that. <laughs> you know, so this trend of sort of using things very quickly and then replenishing them is something that they've played into, I think. Yeah, and if you live on the eleventh floor of a New York apartment, you know, they were you know, they found a way to get a mattress inside a little box. <laughs> right, right. So is there one inflection point coming that that you you know, anybody who's in that industry, you you would like to tell them, you know, they need to do something about it. Well, I, I'd say this is one that cuts across all industries. So you may remember the years at the end of the 90s when we were transitioning from dial-up modems to always on high-speed internet. Um, and what that allowed was the emergence of e-commerce as we know it today. It allowed the voice-on-demand services that we take for granted from companies like Netflix and so on. It allowed blah, blah, blah. You know, it did completely change the game in terms of how people related to digital offerings. And I think 5G is going to have a similar inflection-y kind of effect because if you think about it, if, if you have true 5G the way it's being talked about and it's probably going to take longer than everybody thinks. But when it comes, right, you're going to be getting rid of limited bandwidth. You're going to be getting rid of modems. You're going to have more real-time um, responsiveness on all kinds of devices. I mean, it's. I think it's going to be that kind of change, like the shift from dial-up to true always-on internet. It's going to be the same as the shift from sort of Wi-Fi and, and routers and 4G to this 5G world. Yeah, and I think where what – where people sometimes miss that is that once people start experiencing that, then they expect it from everything. Exactly. And that's, that's where people get caught, isn't it? Well, look at all those dead internet service providers and the modems that they used <laughs> to dial up. You know? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Rita, thanks so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about your work and uh, pick up a copy of Seeing Around Corners? Oh, I'd love them to do that. Well, so my website is RitaMcGrath.com. I know a hugely inventive name. Uh, so it's RitaMcGrath.com. And there you can uh, check out my upcoming events. I have a newsletter archive. I have a monthly newsletter that I do every month. And what I do each month, if your re listeners are interested in uh, inflection points, is I take a different sector of the economy each month and write about what I see as the trends that they should be paying attention to. So we've, this month's is about holiday shopping and how it's changed. Um, we've done construction, we've done advertising, we've done a number of industries. So you can find the whole archive collection on my website. We'll have a link in the show notes. So uh, Rita, Rita, thanks for joining us and uh, hopefully we'll run into you soon out there on the road. That would be great. See you then. 